I would say, don't be afraid to try things. The worst thing you can do as a brand is to do nothing and just slowly run out of money. I know it's scary to write checks. It's scary to swipe that credit card. But if you're not trying different methods of marketing or figuring out what's right for your brand, you're never going to figure it out. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. This is my first guest that I'm having back as a follow-up, so I'm really super happy to have Taylor Grant on with me today, who is the co-founder and CEO of Tribini, which is a ready-to-drink brand of espresso martinis. And we spoke last year in August when they were just about to launch the brand. So it's really exciting given the kind of year we've had as founders and people in the CPG startup space to hear from someone who's actually been in the trenches for the past year and have a real, true, real-time update on how the brand is doing. So welcome back, Taylor. I'm really thrilled that you decided to join me again. Yeah, thanks, Christy. It's great to be back on. And, you know, I think it'll be really cool to give you know, people a perspective of last episode, we were pre-launch, we were getting ready to launch this company. And now we're here, you know, over a year later, and I can tell people about how we pivoted and how things changed from our initial plan and, you know, where we're at as a company and what we're looking forward to as well. Cool. I think that's really important because we talk all the time to people who are at the very early stages with hopes and dreams and ideas of how things are going to go. And, you know, we all know this has been, a. T- I mean, I'd say this has been a tough four years, but this has been an extremely difficult year just because of the economy and the tightening up of fundraising and all the brands that happened to launch right before that. So I'm really happy that, first of all, that you guys are doing well. So congratulations, because it's been hard. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to hear, like, when you talk about pivoting, I mean, I've talked about that so much with people. Talk about what your year has been like from a high level, and then maybe we could dig into some of the specifics. This was our year of building the brand and figuring things out. What works for our brand? What doesn't work for our brand? And what can we put into place going forward that's going to kick us into growth? So that was really the story of this year. And it was a lot of trial and error. It really was. And, you know, figuring out where our brand fits and what type of accounts and what sales pitches were and so forth. So that's really the high level story and, you know, really pivoting where we focused on as well as far as distribution. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know you and I have talked about that a little bit and it didn't happen the way you expected it to. So talk about what you thought was going to happen and then what actually happened. Oh, yeah, of course. So when we were getting ready to launch, we had huge direct-to-consumer hopes and dreams, right? And I think a lot of brands do because that's where you know, there's not a lot of hurdles and barriers to entry, right? A lot of people can enter in direct-to-consumer and put a plan in place. The issue is direct-to-consumer is extremely difficult and it gets more difficult every day, especially from a marketing perspective, right? You know, you can set an agenda. It's like, okay, we're going to drive traffic. Then we're going to capture emails. Then we're going to convert customers and then we're going to retarget customers and it's all going to work out. The truth is that, you know, the meta machine just does not let you do that anymore. Things work differently and the privacy laws are making it very difficult and digital ads, unless if you're, 
knowing exactly, you know, what you're doing can become a black hole. So our business overall pivoted very quickly to being more wholesale focused. And that was the best thing we ever did. And we were able to get a taste of that at launch, selling into the New York market. And we saw quickly like, okay, we can get real traction in the market. We weren't really thinking about this, but come Q1, we were like, this needs to be the focus of this year. And we will figure out direct-to-consumer in some sort of capacity. And we know we want to be in direct-to-consumer, but this is not going to drive growth for our business. You know, So that was the first big pivot. Why do you think the direct-to-consumer got so much harder aside from the Facebook? I mean, the meta thing has been going on for a couple of years. Like they really Mm -hmm. made it impossible to collect your own data. And was there more to it than that? Because it feels like a lot of people are saying that like post-COVID, the GTC world just got really tough. Yeah. You know, I can speak to it from an alcohol perspective. When you take a step back, it's still really early in the days of alcohol direct to consumer. And I think a lot of customers do not know still that they can purchase alcohol direct to consumer. So they're not necessarily looking for it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you already are kind of set back from that perspective, but then also people are, you know, programmed to purchase alcohol in store. So changing that consumer behavior is also very difficult. So it's about finding the right consumer and then being able to convert them. It's a lot of steps and it's extremely difficult. It's interesting because I think the perception of a lot of founders and brand, even just marketers in general, is that getting distribution is way harder than DTC sales. But that doesn't sound like it's been the case for you guys. Oh, no, it was difficult. So the story for us this year by finding way of distributors, you know, so we started off with self-distribution through a company called Park Street. They allow you to distribute your alcohol in select states, but you do all of the legwork, right? You're visiting the accounts. There's no reps. You're following up and getting invoices paid. Sometimes you're even making deliveries yourself if there's a delivery schedule that doesn't work for a certain account. So it's it's a great way to start and build your brand. And now we're at that point where we're really growing out of that. But it was great that we had that solution because at the beginning of the year, once we knew we were going to go full force into wholesale, we found that distributors were not really in a place to bring on new brands. When we were having initial conversations with distributors, they were like, sure, this is really interesting. Sounds like this is a category that's The reality is we took on so many brands in 2020 and 2021, we're just trying to get rid of things and discontinue things right now. So come back to us later. So it was a reality check, you know, in that we thought we were going to, you know, get the ball rolling right away at the beginning of the year in Q1 or very least Q2, when in reality, it was like, wow, okay, we have to really build this brand ourselves this year, catch their attention and then have them bring us in. So we were able to build some great relationships this year with distributors, keep the conversation going, keep them interested. And we were able to finally get our first big break with Allied Beverage Group in New Jersey in October. And you know they're partnered with Breakthrough Beverage, which is a national distributor. And it's been a great start for us, you know, working with a premier distributor. And now we're proving that our brand can really do some damage in way of sales and volume with that kind of force behind us. And you know now we're having conversations with other distributors in our other markets and new markets as well. So 
it really was hard work. It was building the brand, creating awareness around this product in the market and, you know, making us noticeable and making a distributor look at us and say, we need that in our portfolio. How did you make yourself noticeable and create awareness? Because that's that's something that I talk about with brands every single day. And it's so hard because an awareness build, right, is just spending money knowing that you're not going to see immediate returns. And it's very hard for startups and early stage brands to do that. So talk about how you guys did it. Yeah, it was a combination of multiple things, to be honest. And you hit the nail on the head. You have to spend money to do it. And it can be really painful at first. <laughs> yes. And it takes time to really come to fruition. But I would say it was a combination of getting into some really premier accounts, you know, where these distributors actively play. And, and you did that on your own, that right? You did that on your yeah, own through this. We had yeah. to do all of that on our own. So, yeah. you know, not only building out chain businesses like Total Wine and More and Stu Leonard's, but also getting into some of the bigger independent chains. And some of the larger on-premise and hospitality accounts too really helped, but that's not everything because their distributors aren't going out looking on the shelf and saying, that's interesting. They also have to meet you somehow, right? So, you know, participating in trade shows and conferences, the big one that we did this year was Bar Convent in Brooklyn. And we were able to meet a lot of people there. And that's where, you know, a lot of stars aligned for us from the distribution perspective, because we had decision makers all in one place together, trying our product at our booth and getting really excited about it. You can't guarantee that's going to happen. You have to make it happen on your own. And it involves networking with these people prior, you know, because a lot of people aren't going to discover something at a trade show and say, yes, let's do it. They already knew who we were because we put the work in and made the outreach to talk to these people, you know, when you get to that point, they get really excited about the product and they're talking about it with each other, then things happen. So that's one of the ways that you did it. And then I know you guys did some events, right? You've done some consumer sampling as well, right? Yes. And consumer sampling, it's funny you say that. So there's two types of consumer sampling that we do, and it's now our favorite marketing channel and we call it liquid to lips right? There's no better marketing than liquid to lips. And number one, it's doing consumer sampling in accounts that you're in, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're moving product off the shelf and you're generating reorders. It's a fantastic spend for marketing. The other type of consumer tasting we do are wine and spirits festivals. We try to do one a month, sometimes two a month. And even though folks can't purchase our product on the spot there, it helps us drive direct consumer sales by way of QR codes and promo codes for people who are trying our product for the first time at those festivals or driving them to stores. Some folks don't want to purchase from direct consumer and they say, where can we buy it? We direct them to our store locator and, you know, it seems to help, you know, in any given wine and spirits festival, we're meeting 2000 to 3000 new consumers who are trying our product for the first time. So it's super valuable. How do you guys know of all the things you're doing where you're having the most effectiveness? Like what can you tell, or is it all just really, you feel it and you start to see bits and pieces of it coming together, but are there actual measurable things that you're doing? So, you know, with this year, when we were first putting together this new wholesale plan and building the brand, it was kind of like, let's just get what we can get. Like, let's just try to get as many accounts as we possibly can so that, you know, eventually when we get towards the end of the year, we can focus on volume and sales, right? So 
because getting new accounts isn't everything. It doesn't mean you're going to move the product or get it. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's a whole other set of challenges, right? You get into a new account and now you have to make sure your velocities match the expectation or else you won't stay there and you'll never get back in. It's almost like a little bit of a catch-22 because you get in there and then you got to do something else that also costs money, right? To move the product. Yep. You know, the first half of this year was all about getting new accounts Yep. and, you know, volume wasn't really as much of a focus. Of course, we're trying to sell as much product as we can in that first order, but we really needed footprint in all of the regions where we felt that we were going to be successful and then seeing, you know, which accounts were doing the best, doubling down with tastings and demos on those and just learning about where we sell our product and, and where it's the most successful. And how are you guys making sure that once you get distribution, your velocities are working? So there's a few different ways you can do that. Number one is getting in front of the reps as often as possible. So, you know, Allied Beverage, you know, they're very generous with offering us opportunities to come up and present to their reps within our division. And that's great because then we stay top of mind. You can also put together incentive plans for the reps. So it's hey, you put all of our SKUs in one account, you get a bonus, right? Mm -hmm. That's marketing right there because they push hundreds, if not maybe a thousand products every single day. So what is going to make them want to focus on ours? And then also still trying to do all the footwork ourselves. So if we have a rep within our distributor that has a big account, but he's not selling it into it, you know, we go get it for him or her. And then they're like, oh, wow, Tribini got into this account. I'm paying attention. It's just so much work, right? Like it's very labor intensive, all the things that you're doing. And it sounds like you guys have figured out a lot of things along the way, but how do you keep up with all of the actual work? Like, have you built your team up or are you still sort of trying to stay really small and tight? So we made a key hire that we knew we needed to make. And that was to hire a sales leader, a VP of sales, right? It's the most important function of the business. And in reality, as a founder, you can't do it all. You can try your best to do it all as long as you possibly can. But at some point, you know, the plate's just going to get too full, right? So that's a hire we knew we needed to make. So we made that at the end of the summer, beginning of fall which has been a huge difference maker for us, especially when they're familiar, you know, with the distributors that you're working with and already have a relationship with a lot of the reps. That's a huge key. And that was a big game changer for us. And then it's reprioritizing as well, right? So right now we're in the middle of finalizing our 2024 planning, right? So we're currently looking at our team and honestly ourselves and saying, what should we be focused on next year? Because you know, if we're going to grow, we need to be really hyper-focused, but also, you know, have an X on our head for what we're responsible for. Because if you have a team where everyone's working on the same things all the time, it can get messy very quickly. So, you know, setting those expectations with your team, you know, now that things are really happening and we're gearing up for growth. What do you feel like was the biggest challenge of the past 12 months for you guys? The biggest challenge or challenges. I mean, you could say more than one. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest challenges was honestly just self-distributing and doing all that ourselves. Like it gets exhausting having to go out and hit the streets every day to build the brand. You know, not having that sales force is very difficult. And, 
you know, it was fortuitous that, you know, we started to, you know, get the distributor relationships when we did, because I would have done another year of it because I love this brand. I would do anything for it, but it is exhausting being on the road every day and being a CEO. When we launched the New Jersey market in February, I was out there three, four days a week. I really built the brand in that market, saw firsthand how difficult that can be. And now not as hard or hard in different ways. It's still difficult, but now that we have a sales force of reps out there, yeah. it's more manageable. Yeah. And what do you think about like, what is 2024 going to look like for you guys? Like, what are you going to focus on and what's next for the brand? And yeah. So in 2024, well, our number one focus is getting in with premier distributors in all of the markets that we're in right now. Right. So that's in progress. And we're looking to have that in the place by the end of Q1. So in rock and roll. And then it's penetrating as deeply as we can in those markets and maximizing our efforts. But we also are looking to enter some new markets, markets that we've had our eye on and markets that, you know, we think our brand will resonate really well. So those are the two largest initiatives we have for 2024 and producing real growth, you know, breaking that 1 million in revenue mark. That's a big one for us. And being able to, you know, raise a, a priced round, a seed round yeah. so that we can really start growing. That's a huge initiative for us next year. Talk about the markets. How many markets are you guys in right now? And we're in three. Okay. So we're in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Okay. We're taking the Massachusetts, Rhode Island, like New England area, really seriously. And we're also looking at additional mid-Atlantic states like Delaware and you know Washington, DC, you know, places that have similarities to New York and New Jersey. Because mm -hmm. I can tell you, New Jersey in particular is a, a great market for us. So if we can repeat that with similar dem demographics in different markets, that's what we're focused yep. on. Yep. And what do you attribute that to? Do you know? It goes back to when we launched. We were like, where are the espresso martini fans? Yeah. You know? And, you know, we can look at data, we can look at menus at restaurants and bars, and we kind of just, you know, threw a dart on the wall. But, you know, we were right and we were wrong in certain perspectives, but now it goes back to that. It's like, okay, what markets really enjoy this cocktail and what markets are also on board with RTDs? Because yeah. even though RTDs are growing, it's not, you know, growing as fast in certain markets and certain areas. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. In New York City, in Manhattan, RTDs are hot and we do really, really well in Manhattan. There wasn't a lot of education needed, especially, yeah. you know, by the time we got to summer, yeah, all these accounts were on board to bring RTDs on. Brooklyn, which same city, different neighborhood, very different behavior. You go into a Brooklyn liquor store, chances are you're going to see an RTD next to the next to beer sold by the can. Yep. And for a company like us, you know, that's not successful right. because it's going to be harder to move volume. And if you're investing in tastings and demos, you know, in accounts that sell you by the can, you're not going to get an ROI on that. So we learned a lot by paying attention to different neighborhoods and regions and, you know, how they react to our product and our category. So a lot of learnings from that perspective as well. That's really interesting. And I think that actually crosses category. I don't think that's only true of the alcohol industry, but I'm wondering, I love what you're doing. You know what I think is so great about what you're doing? I hope that people really understand this. You're not over distributing right now, right? You're not going so wide that you can't manage it. And also it feels like you're doing it in places. And this is actually a question for you. How important it is, is it for you guys to be close enough to be able to 
be in those markets every day, every week and see what's actually happening. It's very important. So to let the audience know, I live in Pennsylvania, right? I live on the border of Delaware and live very close to New Jersey. Do I wish I was selling in Pennsylvania right now? Yes, absolutely. Pennsylvania is a control state and it's very difficult to get into. It's an initiative on our plate, but we haven't gotten there, right? So what's the next best thing? New Jersey and Delaware. So being able to be in the market and talk to your customers and honestly perform demos yourself. I go to Total Wine Cherry Hill almost every week, every two weeks to do a demo because it's not only just to merchandise or, you know, see how your product's doing, but also to talk to your customers, you know, live is super helpful. Yeah, being in a market where you're not present is difficult. And we experienced that in Florida. We have no people on the ground in Florida and we take trips down there. And that's the best we can do at this point. But that's why Florida is our smallest market right now because we're not there, right? So it's super important. Interesting. Sounds like you're purposefully growing in a way that works for you guys as far as how you develop those individual markets, right? Instead of saying, well, next market we're going to tackle is California. That sounds like it would be really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we definitely have our eyes set on California. It's got to be at the right time, right? It's going to be a large investment, you know, from a brand perspective. And like you mentioned, not being there is huge. So it's going to involve investment in personnel, And that's going to be the story in a lot of different markets for us. So yeah, it's easy to say like, let's go after the largest markets. You can do that, but it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. You have to do it the right way. What was your favorite thing about the last year? Like either something you learned that was like, yes, this has revolutionized our business, or this was really a fun thing to take on. As simple as it sounds, I think the most exciting thing is just seeing how much customers like our product. And that's seen in a couple different ways. It's seen in reorders, you know, from accounts. It's seen in demos and, you know, in tastings and getting that reaction. It's a dopamine hit, you know, it's like, okay, we're doing something right. Let's keep doing it. And it sounds so simple. It really huge just to see how people react to your product. Also getting into some really cool hospitality accounts. We're in the Four Seasons Palm Beach. Amazing. And the breakers, Palm Beach. Like, that's so cool. And How did that's that happen? cold outreach. Wow. Old, right. And then, you know, like I said, we're not down there, right? So getting the decision maker samples and doing that all over Zoom, phone, and email was very difficult to do. But never did I think at the beginning of this year that we were going to get into, you know, five star hotels. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And they get it. That's the best yeah. part. They understand the product and they get the pitch. So hospitality is something I did not really expect and has been a huge surprise for us this year. That's great. That's really awesome. If you were thinking about all that you went through in the past year and you were going to give advice, I mean, I asked you for advice last time, which was amazing, but now you're in it, right? You've been in it for over a year. Mm -hmm. You've had some of the ups and downs and highs and lows. What are some of the things you would say? Yeah. I mean, compared to last time I was here, I think we're in a much scarier fundraising environment and probably one of the most competitive product environments that we've been in in a while. Um, Everyone's got a competitor now. You know, there's nothing really that unique anymore. When we were launching, we were very unique, right? Now there's competition in the market and it's a good thing, but it can get overwhelming, right? Um, And also fundraising and making decisions on how to allocate those funds, right? 
I would say, don't be afraid to try things. The worst thing you can do as a brand is to do nothing and just slowly run out of money. I know it's scary to write checks. It's scary to swipe that credit card. But if you're not trying different methods of marketing or figuring out what's right for your brand, you're never going to figure it out. And I'll paint a perfect example for us, direct to consumer. Like I said, we made a huge pivot at the beginning of the year, but that doesn't mean we gave up on it, right? We still invested in the channel and we tried different marketing methods and we found one that worked for us, right? And now we're trying to, you know, build a strategy around that, that can allow us to grow our direct to consumer business at a meaningful rate. It's still not going to be our growth engine, but it allows us to maximize that channel. So, you know, never give up on, you know, trying things and trying to make your business work, unless if you figure out that a certain aspect of your business just isn't going to work, then move on, pivot. So that's the advice I would give. And fundraising, you know, we touched on that a little bit. It's extremely difficult right now. Keep pushing. You got to keep reaching out to people. There's surprisingly a a lot of people that you'll find that want to be helpful. Maybe they can make some intros for you. Finding centers of influence for your business and networking is huge. And you should be doing it as much as you possibly can. Who do you go to for advice? Who do you look to? I think all founders wing it to some degree. Yep. Um, But then what happens? How do you really figure out what's next? What's the best thing to do? What is the best way to raise capital? What's the best way to expand distribution? Talking to other companies that you don't compete with is great. You know, it's kind of like uh, founder therapy, (laughs) founder group therapy. I find that to be really refreshing and great because you go on LinkedIn and you see what founders are saying. It's all, you know, roses and butterflies and everything's great. And we did this and we did that. When the reality is there's usually like 10 times as many problems going on in the background and issues that you're dealing with, right? So, you know, talking to founders in your network that are honest and, you know, are willing to be helpful is great. Also having investors, you know, that are willing to be helpful. Not all investors are helpful, but finding a couple that are willing to be helpful for you on a regular basis that will take your phone call, help you introduce you to people is great. And they may not understand completely everything that you're going through and be able to have an answer for you. They might have someone in their network or a friend of theirs that may be helpful. So just continuously speaking, you know, with the people in your circle is huge. And even if they don't have a perfect answer for you, it may help you figure it out. Like just saying things out loud, right? Sometimes. Yeah. 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 Just collaborating a little bit. Have you done the accelerator programs? I can't remember. We were not in any accelerator programs. No. Do you know people who have, do you find them like, did you decide on purpose not to do it for a reason or you just? You know, for me, when we were launching our company, we had already raised some cash Mm -hmm. and we had our plan in place. And, you know, I felt that we didn't need the accelerator when we launched. However, I see the appeal for accelerators. And, you know, if I could go back, I probably would have joined an accelerator. Yeah. You know, some of them can be pretty costly to your cap table. So be wary of that. But, you know, it's definitely, I definitely think it's a huge tool for first time founders and for folks that may have this really cool idea, but they're not very familiar with the industry. I know some people that work with Beyond Skew down in Austin, Texas, and New York, and and I've heard great things about them. I also know in wine and spirits, a lot of 
the large conglomerates like Constellation and Diageo sponsor accelerators. So, you know, there's a lot of options out there. They're not easy to get into. You have to have a pretty cool product and you have to have a team they believe in. But I think it's a great tool for founders to explore, especially when they haven't launched yet. Also hard to get into when you haven't launched yet, because most of them are yeah. not revenue, yeah. right? Yeah. Most of them are. Um, like most investors, you. they also want to see that you have right. you know, certain boxes right. checked. <laughs> right, right, right. And then from an investor perspective, when you're raising capital, is there anything that's changed that feels like it needs to get talked about openly that people are not talking about? From the institutional side, let's start there. You know, certain funds market themselves a certain way. We're a pre-seed fund. We're a seed fund. These are the types of founders we invest in. I think a lot of that's changing on the fly. There's some pre-seed investors that are now upgrading their mandate to seed. And a lot of companies do not know that. I think we're just in an environment right now where a lot of things are changing. And investors in particular, you know, they may not be getting the flows that they once had into their funds as well. So just overall investor behavior is changing and you don't know that until you're live having a conversation with them usually. Have you found it hard to get the conversations or not hard to have the conversations, just hard to move them forward or none of the above? You know, I find it pretty easy to have intro conversations these days. If someone has interest in your product, I think they at least want to talk to you and meet Mm -hmm. you. They might already know they're not going to invest in you, but they at least want to have you, you know, in their pocket for when that time comes, or they just, they want to see if you're investable, you know, having intro conversations doesn't seem to be difficult. It's just getting people to move along the path and get to the finish line is particularly difficult these days. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, that's what I'm hearing all over the place. What's super exciting that's coming up for you guys, aside from trying to get into new markets? Well, we launched our first limited edition SKU this holiday season. We launched our Peppermint Mocha Espresso Martini, which was our first new product since we launched. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. And, you know, it's not to, you know, give anyone, you know, any uh, secrets, but it's given us enough information to know that we could do new limited runs and limited editions in the future. That's We're cool. really excited about that potential. And there's so many ways to do it, like variety packs or yep. gift boxes or yep. collaborations. So when you have something unique that you know people really like, there's a lot of different ways to market it and it, it gets the juices flowing. Do you guys do a lot of collabs? Because I think that's another interesting thing for people when they're in the early stage and can't spend a ton of money, but need to get exposed to more people. Yeah, we haven't done any real collabs, but it's something we're taking seriously and that we want to do in the future. We're having a lot of conversations internally now about what type of collaboration we want to look for. There's a lot of brands that do it really well that you can see as a case study, like live in the flesh. There's also some collabs that just fall on deaf ears, right? Oh, yeah. so it's like anything else. You just got to find the right fit and you know start having those conversations. So I think it's a great way to grow these days. There's a brand I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Cookie Dough brand Dough. They do a ton of collaborations yeah. and it seems like, oh, another collab from Dough. It's like, but they all work really well. And that team is really good at executing on collaborations. So if you're a brand right now, Go watch what Sabina Lada is doing at Doe. And she's the case study for collabs right now in CPG. Interesting. And I have one more question for you because I'm wondering where you stand on this. You know, 
influencers at the beginning were pretty straightforward. Then mm-hmm. everyone became an influencer in the whole wide world and got hard to tell, you know, what was real and what wasn't and who was going to be effective. And I think that right now it's challenging because I think early stage brands always think, well, I'll go the influencer route initially because it'll get me more followers. It'll get me more exposure. I will spend less money, but that isn't necessarily true anymore. So I'm curious how you feel about that, because I think it's become a very tricky environment to navigate. It's extremely difficult. We've done influencer campaigns. We've done gifting to influencers. We've done almost all of it throughout this year. And the truth is that like influencers are just becoming such a commodity. There's so many of them. I know. And every platform has their own version, right? Every platform has their own influencer group. Yes. And it's becoming very expensive as Mm -hmm. well. I can tell you our gifting program, you know, probably wasn't as successful as we thought it was going to be. We had influencers post a picture of our gift box on their story and then nothing, nothing about our product. And then you get some creators that love your product and want to promote it and want to do more. And that's great to find. It's just so difficult to navigate. I think where influencers are going to be most successful for brands going forward are in formal partnerships with them joining the company as an equity holder. That's interesting. Yeah, really incentivizing them to push them. In the same vein as celebrities are getting more involved in CPG and wine and spirits, Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see more influencers doing that type of work going forward because- they get so many opportunities these days. What's going to make them get up in the morning to focus on your brand? I think that's where everything's going. And it's really interesting to see how quickly it's evolved. Influencers, it's very difficult. But it's when you. Difficult. And I think what you said is true. Like you could get lucky and get the right one at the beginning, or you could have to try a whole bunch and wind up spending way more money than you'd spend if you just did regular old marketing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have some influencers that you know, that, that have been great for us. And, you know, we, we have done some deeper partnerships, especially for the holidays, as far as, you know, content and affiliate goes. I do think affiliate marketing is a really interesting channel also costs a lot of money to execute on, but Mm -hmm. we've dabbled in affiliate, but we found that to be pretty successful on its surface. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another interesting channel because traditional influencer, you pay them a fee, they do what they do, and they're done with you if they want to be done. But affiliate, they literally need to sell something to get something. And I think that forces it to be more effective in some ways, because if they don't, you're not paying them anyway, it doesn't matter. I think influencers will get a lot more business for themselves if they're willing to adapt to the affiliate style. And some are, and they're smart for doing it. But that's something I would love to see in the influencer channels for them to kind of blend in with that affiliate more often. Yeah. I mean, when it, for us, when it comes down to it, we found that our grassroots marketing efforts have been the most successful this year. And that's liquid to lips, doing tastings and demos, and also just building our email list and doing email marketing and, you know, constantly communicating with our customers in that way has been successful. So, you know, we're going to continue to do that. Awesome. So good to hear. Any other things? I mean, this is so great to hear your update. I'm so happy that you guys are doing well. And also that you've been open about the challenges because I think everyone's facing them and just wants to find ways to navigate them and also know that they're not the only ones navigating them. Yeah. I mean, it's just keep going. It's, I know it's hard right now and everyone's going through it together. Just keep pushing, keep going. You know, if you stop swimming, you're going to drown, right? So just keep pushing. 
And don't be afraid of competition. If you're seeing more competitors pop up where you're playing, that means your category is becoming bigger as well. So don't get scared off by new competition showing up. It's a good thing. I think that's really good perspective because I also think what you said is true. I mean, it's true for me too. You look at social and you see what people are doing and you're like, wait, am I, I'm not doing that. Should I be doing that? Is that really working for them? You know that half of it's not true, at least maybe more. I can tell you with full transparency, any content or, you know, initiatives that we've had go viral this year, pure luck. Yeah. You can't engineer that type of success. Yep. You just can't. It, yep. Sometimes it just happens. But if you don't keep trying, mm-hmm. it won't happen. Yep. Well, that's a fact, right? If you give up, you give up. It's hard though. I mean, I think this has been a really hard year and I'm happy to see that you guys are doing well. And I think you just have to sort of do what you're talking about. Be very specific and deliberate and not be all over the place and unfocused because then there's almost no way to make it if that's the case. It's absolutely correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we go? I really appreciate this. Update. No, ha- happy holidays oh, to everyone out there. I know this is going to come out after the holidays, but I hope everyone had a happy holiday. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday. Wednesday.